Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, greetings everyone, and it is my great pleasure to introduce you to my newest friend, Judith Blackstone. And many of you may well know Judith as the director and founder of The Realization Process. Judith is from Woodstock in New York, and she has led one incredible life and has written many books, as I can see, The Realization Process, a step-by-step guide to embodied spiritual awakening, trauma and the unbound body, belonging here, the intimate life, the empathic ground, the enlightenment process. I mean, Judith, this is just an incredible legacy of your life's work and your realization and understanding and embodiment and teaching of embodied realization. So huge welcome to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Chloe. It's wonderful to be in this conversation with you. And I, I, I was just saying to you earlier that every time I talk to you, I just feel this immense upwelling of joy, which <laughs> just seems to be unstoppable. So clearly, whatever you're doing and just your being itself just seems to emanate such absolute sweetness and it invites me and all those who are lucky enough to work with you to really uncover the mysteries of non-duality and not only non-duality, but how we actually embody enlightened states or more awakened states of awareness and so on. But I would love to ask you first, what is your understanding of compassion and how has compassion shown up in your life? Mm, well... I understand compassion to be a really important mix of love and and understanding, you know, a, a love-based understanding, an ability to, to see through uh, the pain and confusion, to hold that and also to see through it to who the person is beyond that, so even beyond their their behaviors but also even beyond their pain. And you know what it often means in my work with people has been to see the, the child, the child in them. I teach, you know, I teach this series of practices and they're meditative practices. And so, and so it's wonderful to sit in a room and have, you know, 
observe people just melting away to their core. And what you often see is the child and each one, you know, so beautiful, a determined child, a courageous child. And, um, and also, of course, the roots of, the, of whatever suffering there might still be and whatever behaviors coming out of that suffering. But to just to, to see all, all the way through that, you know, it's very related, of course, to empathy. So mm-hmm. it's yeah. been very important in, in my life, uh, both empathy and compassion. Of course, it's been so extremely important when it's come towards me, uh, you know, to help me in my healing process and to help me witness myself with compassion. I think that's something we can, we can do for each other as healers is to witness each other with compassion so that they can witness themselves in that, in that way, which is really a kind of a requirement for healing that we, that we see each, ourselves with compassion. I don't know, I could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it's so beautiful. And it's, as I understand it, the birthing of, of your understanding of what you now teach and train all over America came from your early years, you were just saying earlier, as a dancer? Yes, the realization process goes back around maybe 45 years. I had been a professional dancer since I was a child. I started performing uh, when I was 10, and then I injured myself very badly uh, when I was 25. And of course, you know, 25, I'd been dancing all my all my life, really didn't know anything else. And so, of course, I thought that life was just over. And I had moved into this wonderful loft, this, uh, you know, great big lofts that we used to be able to get fairly inexpensively in New York City. And I used to just lie on the floor and, and really hope and pray for healing to be able to, to dance again. That's all I wanted. And as I lay there, I began to experience, of course, I was so broken and I'd had surgery and I'd worn a back brace for six months. So I was really, I was really just like a little noodle lying there. And so I began to notice various rather amazing things happen, like energy uh, currents, which I knew nothing about at the time, come up through the ground and without me doing anything except lying there, bring me towards alignment, right? Bring me towards the alignment that I had lost in this injury. And so I was, of course, extremely intrigued and I began to play with it. And I realized that, for example... And it's all about my spine. My spine had really gone out of whack. So I, I began to notice that if I found the point to the right of me and the point to the left at the same time, again, my spine would just automatically come towards center. Wow. And things like that. Oh. Well, in the meantime, I had people coming to my loft to take dance classes because that's how I made a living. I couldn't dance. I could get up off the floor. I wasn't just stuck on the floor. I could get up off the floor. And I began to teach them these subtle experiences that I was having. And that was the beginning of it. Oh, how amazing. So it's right. it sounds like a sort of act of grace combined with an already gifted capacity to literally be in your physicality, which in itself is very difficult for so many people. Well, you know, it's interesting to be a dancer. You know, it's a highly... I was a highly trained dancer. Mm-hmm. I was so strong <laughs> that, that my, my first husband used to, just as a party trick, with, with no ill intent towards me at all, punch me in the stomach just to show people how he couldn't make a dent. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> it, was, 
strong. And it was really strong. And then for his next number, he would he would say, point your feet. And I would point my feet and he would not be able to unpoint them. And this oh was a, my. a young man in his 20s. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, it was very strong. You know, to be that strong, there's quite a lot of objectification of the body. Mm-hmm. And maybe more in those days, I don't know. I had spent like most of my life at that point looking at myself in the mirror quite critically adjusting, adjusting, adjusting. And that's besides the objectification that one gets just, you know, arriving in adolescence mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and being looked at in that way. So, so there was actually quite a lot that I had to do. Now, of course, I was tuned into my body in a certain way for having worked with it for all those years. But I was also objectified. At one point, even, I remember standing in that loft and looking at myself in these cheap mirrors that I bought and thinking, I'm actually turned the wrong way in the mirror. (laughs) I'm looking back at myself. I'm not looking out, you know? And so part of the work for me really was taking down that that musculature and the objectification with it. Of course, I'd lost anyways a lot of that uh, musculature, but coming deeper into my body so that instead of being an object, I was a subject, the subject of my own life, looking out uh, at the world rather than just being something that was looked at. You know, so an interesting, yes, in some ways I was uh, very qualified to make that transition. And on the other hand, I really needed it. Right. But I mean, to actually take it on and to see it, you know, as a catalyst for your own transformation, it obviously meant that you had, there was sort of, inner qualities that you already that were already birthing themselves or developing strengthening within you that you were able to even perceive yourself in that way or were there people around you that were in any way inspiring that deepening understanding or was it just literally coming out of your own awareness you know it was mostly coming out of my own awareness i did have one friend in high school who could see auras Mm-hmm. And um, then she was, a, you know, is a very sensitive person. And she said, you can see them too. And I said, no, no, I can't. And, and she said, yes, look at me against this white wall. And yes, uh, then I actually could see it. So there were little tiny hints like that. And then when I got to that loft all broken, mm-hmm. I could look in the mirror and see that there was this very sickly light around myself, you know. I had a kind of sensitivity, and I've had an unusual childhood in this bohemian setting with all these, you know, I I grew up in the dance world with Uh a new set of parents, you know, on top of my my regular parents. And so I was, you know, I was sensitive. Mm -hmm. Being broken like that really evoked that sensitivity to a much greater extent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. it can go both ways, can't it? Well, it can go many ways, of course. I mean, there's some yeah. people that that is a catalyst for an absolute downturn and, you know, a sort of a life of chosen or an identification with suffering that kind of takes supremacy over this deepening uh, wisdom, deepening insights, deepening perception of yourself. Yeah, ab- absolutely. There was a determination in me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is maybe, you know, there's a lot of talk in the psychotherapy field about why some people heal and some people don't seem to heal. And I think um, it takes a couple of things. It takes uh, humility, for one thing, which the discipline of a dancer does 
kind of pound into you. <laughs> right. You know, you work so hard. Uh, so I did have that, you know, like I just was able to kind of surrender to the process, you know, whatever this is. But I also had kind of a deep self-love or self, I just refused to have myself broken. Brilliant. You know, I was not going to live like that. So there was, there was certainly that driving force. I'd love to know, was your desire to dance and obviously to achieve a high level as a dancer, was that also coming from you as well? There was no kind of, because sometimes you know how you have parents who have this plan for their children, and there's a kind of imposed uh, motivation rather than an inner motivation. But did that come from you as well? You know, that's a hard thing to answer, Chloe. It certainly wasn't my parents pushing me, and and Mm. they weren't the type of parents to to push me in any way. Mm-hmm. In fact, they were quite laissez-faire. You know, the, mm. my father had a strong belief that I should follow my own lights. Um, right. well, that's great. Yeah. I, yes, yes. I came right into this modern dance group. Uh, Danya Foyer and Paul Sanisarlo were their names. Danya found me in Brooklyn when I was uh, nine years old, put me in a duet with her called Dust Sparrows. Beautiful. Yeah, she, she was a beautiful artist. And we spent many hours in the studio choreographing. And so I fell in love with, with moving uh, with her, with the imagery that one could express through dance. Um, but she was, you know, she was a great motivator. And then when I got into the company itself, Paul and Tanya, then after that duet, they brought in several, maybe 15 children and those two were forces of nature. And so it's hard to tell, was I motivating myself or they were motivating me? There's no, I can't even find the boundary there. Sounds like it was really reciprocal for the for the two of you. But I mean, to be, what I can hear is that she recognized something in you that wanted this. It sounds as if it was a kind of reciprocal process. Yes, it must have been. I don't think I was stuck with it. I mean, it was so hard. And it was particularly hard for me because I have a weakness in my spine that I was apparently born with. So I had to work very, very hard uh, to come up to the kind of athletic level. That wasn't what I loved at first. At first, you know, with, with Danya, as a, when I was a young child dancing with her, it was all imagery. You know, she would, she would say, you know, close your eyes, you're you're walking downstage on grass. There's grass underneath your feet. You know, it was like that. Ah, <laughs> it, was like, it was like being a living poem, you know. It was just yeah. Real. And then when the, the requirement became more athletic, because, I mean, Danya left, for one thing, when I was about 14, and it was just Paul. And, and then we really had to meet a kind of uh, athletic requirement, which was difficult for me. And then there was a different kind of pleasure. And, of course, the pleasure of being able to, do those feats, which I did manage to do for several years. So that's, of course, another kind of pleasure altogether. Yeah, I, yeah, I loved it. There's no, no question about that. Yeah. But what I'm hearing also is this absolute passion for a, a kind of a perfection and for detail and for intimacy with the moment. You know, obviously, in this, at this time in your life, and in this case, it was to do with the, the perfecting of of the movement and you know what the body could actually create for itself and then how the body go can even possibly even go beyond itself because the dance is like visual poetry as you say i love that 
And so for the viewer, you know, for someone who hasn't developed that, it's, it's the most glorious thing to see the human body literally tr- going beyond itself, going beyond what so many people are capable of, expressing a, a transformative beauty through it. Yes, there is that. And, and I, I did come to love it. It wasn't my, wasn't my first love of dance. It was more the humanity that you could express through the body. And that actually became a bit lost Ah. with the, the you know the physical transcendence right physical transcendence was fun and i've got to say i still have dreams of being able to like you know leap through the air like that you know which i was able to do for a few years but that filling the body and this is where i think this is what brought me back to to the realization process and wanting to to find that kind of inner connection to movement that i had actually lost in those last years in the dance company Incredible. Like I'm really beginning to hear also, you talked about humility and the importance of humility. Obviously within compassion, that is absolutely um, central, isn't it really? But, But it sounds as if you, rather like my own self with my own life and many people, of course, you're reminding me actually of James Hillman's book, you know, The Soul's Code, mm-hmm. um, that idea of how our um, woundedness is our potentially is our awakening and is is the doorway that will open into a a wider and deeper reality. It really is. And I think also it's what we can bring to others. Right. You know, like now I sometimes, you know, I do teacher trainings in the realization process and there's a, one of the three main aspects of the work is the psychological healing part. And what I, you know, really people are like, well, how do you do it? How do you do it? And the main requirement really is that you have faced your own pain, you know, that that someone can get absolutely furious in front of you and you're like, oh, yes, fury, I know it well, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, that little (laughs) chestnut. And for all of them, you know, grief. Oh, of course, grief, yeah. And, you know, you don't need to match it, but you can certainly remember it, you know, and, and be there with it. There's no, there's no aversion to it, no pulling back from it. So yeah, so one's own woundedness and of course process of healing, that's our main requirement, I think, to bring compassion and healing to others. And what I hear from others who, very dear friends, we, we, we share similar friends and people who've studied with the Naked Voice work and who've also studied with you, which is um, thanks to them, to Julie Glover and so on, and Lizanne Fisher, and people who really absolutely presently are deriving so much pleasure and joy and learning from working with you. What I hear from them, even before I met you, was their descriptions of working with you is like all about being seen being acknowledged and what I describe as the kind of the homeopathy of the spiritual practice, you know, that that somehow that capacity of another person to really see beneath the psychological layers through, see the the benefit and the value of the psychological layers, but then to actually sear down deeper into a deeper seeing is what I'm hearing is happening in your work. And that really resonates for me because it's there's something similar going on in mine as well. Yes, yes. There must be so many resonances between our between your work and mine. That mm-hmm. we have so many people in common. I mean it's quite <laughs> it's great. <laughs> So, yeah, that's seeing. I knew uh, when I used to travel with Coleman Barks and he, he, he produced a beautiful book of Rumi's poems called The Gaze. 
And I just love that word, the gaze. Gaze, You know, when he was first seen by his master, so this is Coleman as opposed to Rumi in Charms of Tabriz, but when he, Coleman, was seen by his Sufi master, Bawa Muhayyadin, he talks about the light points in his eyes and how he saw, he was seen in a way that no one had ever seen him. Mm. You know, almost as if he was perceiving the body as light itself. And it sounds to me, because there was this one lovely, lovely description that Julie Glover gave me of of working with you. One of her early experiences was something like, and I'm I'm sure, Julie, if you're listening to this, you'll be very happy I'm sharing this. It's difficult to keep you out of this conversation because you're such an integral part of it, really. But I remember you talking about how she she was sitting in front of you, Judith, and... And you were you were just gazing. There was a gaze that that gaze was going on, and she you were perceiving what the inner work was to be, if you like. And between you, there was this kind of alchemy of listening going on. And she said suddenly, Julie was aware that you were aware of her feet. Her feet were were moving, and her toes were moving. Yeah. And you started to mirror that, and something quite special happened there you know, that she describes. And it was just something to do with that extraordinary alchemy that goes on between human beings, where you have two human beings and then a third thing happens. <laughs> it's that the most sense? wonderful thing, yes. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Robert Bly calls it the third body, doesn't he? The third body. Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, the main thing that I'm teaching is to uncover, and we really can experience this very, very subtle consciousness pervading our own body and everything around us, which means other people as well. So it actually provides a, you know, an actual sense of permeability, even in you know, material, even a chair and so forth. Not that I can see what's behind the chair. Because of that pervasive, I call it fundamental consciousness, that base consciousness, when we experience it pervading another person, we actually can, to some extent, see we call it see-feel in the realization process, see-feel their being mm. within them. I think that's something that sensitive people do automatically. We're not just looking at the surface. We're seeing the person right in there. And so having, you know, cultivated that over decades, you know, to be able to see-feel where someone lives in themselves, because we all have that design of where we're going to live more in our head or our heart or over to one side than the other. And we're all like that and the feelings, the emotions that we hold in our body and so forth. So that's part of that unveiling of that fundamental consciousness that we can see through in that way. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Would you like to just share a bit more about that and, you know, just a little bit more detail around how that unveiling process evolves for a human being? The realization process is just basically a series of attunement practices that that put you in a deeper and you know interestingly too the deeper you go inward into your body uh, especially as you reach a very subtle vertical channel that we can experience running through our torso neck and head shushumna Mm -hmm. it's called in yoga right Mm -hmm. central channel it's called in buddhism so especially as we go deep enough to reach that uh, then we get to a more subtle experience of ourselves in the world and we can get so subtle that we get to this unified ground. And it's a wonderful experience. And of course, you know, I got to this through my healing, you know, my healing of my own body and then, and then living in a Zen monastery and so forth. 
But in fact, it's mentioned, this experience is mentioned in certain lineages of the traditional Hindu and Buddhist literature, mm-hmm. this uncovering of this, you know, Buddha nature, basic ground that we can experience pervading everywhere. So yeah, I mean, I came to it through a number of small steps, but now I teach it much more, much more directly through these, through these practices. And, and, and yes, people can find they can, they can experience it. It's part of our, part of our nature. That's absolutely beautiful. And it would be lovely to hear a bit more about the influence of the lineages as well, how you came into this understanding, what there's, how the lineages of Zen and, and so on, how that impacted the evolution of your own teaching. You know, here again, I was, I was desperate. <laughs> I, uh, I studied with all kinds of amazing people. Uh, someone who taught me about the center of the head, he was, a, he was a lapsed rabbi, taught me about the center of the head. And I went to India and studied with an amazing guru there, who, Sai Baba, who's now sadly fallen from grace, apparently, uh, but was just incredible. So I came into the teachings of Advaita Vedanta. And this guru's a very simple, clear delivery of those teachings. And I began to realize that what he was describing, what was being described, was very similar to what I was experiencing in my dance studio, healing myself. And so I was fascinated that this was something that, you know, that had actually been charted. And, you know, the Asian teachings, uh, as you know, talk about these things very uh, directly, there's uh, not a whole lot of poetry the way, you know, if, you really, if you're really a good poet, you can read the Western teachings, spiritual teachings as well, and find references to this, to this you know, foundation of ourselves, but you really need to translate a lot. Whereas in the Asian teachings, no, they're just like, do this, and there it is. <laughs> That's who you are, Buddha nature. <laughs> <laughs> Great, you know, <laughs> and then and then uh, in nineteen, yeah, yeah. So it was like, you know, they made it very simple. It's it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that just doesn't come into our education, does it? I mean, the idea of Buddha nature, or I mean, it right. would be, I suppose it would be Jesus or Yahweh. Would it be? How would we? I'm soft. I mean, you really have to search for it. You do. You absolutely do, don't you? And it's so disembodied so often as well. Well, the idea that you can actually be Jesus, that's even, you know, I mean, there are certain, of course, you can find teachings like that. Meister Eckhart and, you know, but you really need to search for them. Whereas there are a lot more available now. Not, of course, all the Asian teachers teachings teach this ground. In fact, there's a lot of debate in the Asian teachings about whether there is a ground or there isn't a ground. And the Tibetan Buddhists really divide that and make very clear that distinction between those teachings and the others. Anyway, then I got to the Zen monastery in 1981, where I had to meditate for hours a day, which of course I could do because I was already disciplined from my years as a dancer. And I could sit cross-legged forever. (laughs) Those days are gone now, but I could. (laughs) And and so the realization became very clear by the end of that year. Now, the Zen teachings that I came into contact with did not teach about the ground. Hmm. You know, they had words for it, which they didn't, which they just interpreted differently in the Zen monastery where I was in upstate New York, Mount Jumper. For example, uh, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. 
Mm. Now, that's a beautiful way to describe the permeability that we experience as fundamental consciousness. Mm-hmm. But the teaching that I came into, although we chanted that every day, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, mm-hmm. the interpretation was uh, philosophical. It was not experiential. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. there was never any, any message in that teaching that we could actually be form and emptiness at the same time, and that everything around us would also be form and emptiness at the same time. One thing they say in Zen Buddhism is, I have never moved from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So there it is again. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then when I got out of the Zen uh, monastery in 1982, having uh, acquired a wonderful second husband, (laughs) 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 I still have. Uh, Then we, as my husband and I, Zorin and I, began to explore the Tibetan Buddhism, which was, we were living in Woodstock, New York, and Tibetan Buddhism flourishes in Mm. Woodstock, New York. Um, We have the seed of the Karmapa here, uh, Mm. the seed of the Kagyu uh, lineage, Tibetan Buddhism. We never joined anything, you know? Mm -hmm. I am not a Buddhist, I'm not a Hindu. I've never joined anything, but I've learned from from all these different teachings. Absolutely. We're very similar in that way as well. Yeah. 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 But the Tibetan teachings obviously had a tremendous influence, I would have thought. Mm-hmm. Now, the Tibetans also express, and by this time, I wasn't looking so much for realization because I'm already quite clear in that, mm. but the descriptions uh, were were closer to my experience than, for example, the descriptions in Advaita Vedanta, in the Hindu non-dual descriptions, where, where everything is considered an illusion, you know, the content of what we call the content of experience, the changing content of experience, just an illusion, the reality is Brahman, the reality is the ground. And of course, my teacher, my Hindu teacher, Sai Baba, he didn't really teach that. He taught that the changing content of experience, he called it mitya, mm-hmm. real and unreal, real, unreal. And he talked about the, the kind of the typical, uh, although I guess it's a rather contemporary metaphor where the screen doesn't change, but the, the projections onto the screen change. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Tibetan Buddhism, they really talk about the co-arising of the ground and phenomena. The co-arising and the, what they call the spectacle, the changing spectacle of life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a co-arising. I mean, really, they're all talking about the same thing. I People have tried to convince me that they're not, but I, I, I don't believe that. They, the descriptions, when they get right down to describing their experience, and a lot of these teachers do, like what Chempa, the experience seems the same, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course it would, right? Because this is not something we invent. In fact, this is... This is something we don't invent. I mean, that's its whole, that's the whole point. It's, right. it's a given. We unveil it, you know. Uh, right. it's, it's not created. Uh, in fact, that's what, uh, that's what Shankara says about it. Shankara being mm-hmm. one of the Advaita Vedanta sages, he says, it's uncreated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so important, you know, because we're coming out of a philosophical time in our society where everything is created. Right. Everything is created. And yet here's this, this one uncreated 
ground. Yes, absolutely. In sound, that is the yeah, it's the primordial sound. It's the sound before sound, mm. isn't it? It's that sa. It is the sound of fundamental consciousness, which is yes. the unchanging. It's the unchanging note, isn't it? But it is the sound before the note. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's so interesting, this, because I was lucky enough to, to sing for His Holiness a few times, and there was one time when he'd been asked to come to London University to, to teach on Christ's journey from the cross to the tomb to the transfiguration from a Tibetan perspective. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, he, and he starts out, it was absolutely extraordinary. He started out very, very humbly saying, I can't, you know, I don't really know why you're asking me to to come and do this. I mean, I'm a, I, I know nothing of, you know, to, and to speak about that, to speak about the Christian gospel. And it was so, I think it was St. Matthew's gospel was the literature they were using, the text. But my God Almighty, you know, to see that audience literally mainly the christians because there were buddhists and christians in the audience mainly christians to see their jaws dropping as he slowly <laughs> took people through these different body states that he imagined christ was going through and then ending up in the rainbow body of light mm-hmm. and you know and you just saw and I, I myself was saying why did no one ever tell me about this Suddenly, you know, the whole thing, the physicality and the disappearance through the different subtle bodies between physicality and space and emptiness, you know, that, yeah. that form and emptiness was absolutely breathtaking and so reassuring. You know, as you say, it was just, it's very, the fact that they completely include the whole physical experience. That was what was so missing for me as a child, you know, with a mm-hmm. Protestant bishop for a father you know who i loved very dearly and i loved i loved hearing the christian story particularly easter and the whole but it was like the focus on crucifixion and you know the resurrection was just like you know and then they lived happily ever after you know like the fairy tales but no real languaging of the journey from the crucifixion into resurrection Mm. that has to be spelt out doesn't it because otherwise why are we in physical bodies at all Yes, that's right. How do we get there? <laughs> how do we get there and how do we get back? <laughs> and he can do it. And I think that's, I mean, to me, you know, I wasn't brought up Christian, but, I, but to me that's one of the most beautiful parts of Christianity is that he was human. Right. And if he can do it, that means that a human can do this. A human can be this. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. I would love you, perhaps, if you would like to just sort of share a little bit more about the, the training process or can people have access to your trainings and so on via your website and so on? Sure, on the website, realizationprocess.org. I, yes, and of course, these days, everything is online, which I love. And uh, in terms of the teacher training, I do both workshops Mm-hmm. And teacher trainings, you know, two different things. For teacher trainings, if you want to teach the work, uh, the next online training starts in October. So, yeah, all that information is online. Well, Judith, I mean, I just feel like we've just opened doors. We've opened doors. We've touched on different dimensions of your extraordinary life, you know, and I just sort of feel like we could just carry on talking for much, much longer. But I'm just wondering, is there anything you'd like to complete with on this theme mm-hmm. of compassion and 
where you are now in your life. Compassion is something that I've been, I've been learning, I guess, as we all have since childhood. Mm. But in my very strange childhood where I was in with all these adults, you know, I would sometimes wind up at one of these adult parties because mm. they like to kind of pull and down you. They like to kind of show me off. I was like their child. Mm. And, uh, you know, I kind of represented childhood. I'd <laughs> be at the party. And I remember a woman with tears streaming down her face. You know, these adults, they were so different than, the, than my own parents. They were so unguarded. And mm. here's this woman crying and she takes my hand and she puts it on her, her chest. She wants me to feel her pain. Isn't that something? My God. Yeah. Wow. Her bony chest and the, the grief underneath my hand on her chest. And so, yes, I mean, that's, uh, mm-hmm. that was the beginning for me. But of course, I had to go through so much to really, to really get to it. It's the most wonderful journey. It's choiceless, isn't it, really? I mean, we, we have, there's no choice about it, really, once you embark upon, upon it. It unfolds, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it unfolds. Well, I really look forward to participating in this unfolding with you uh, in the coming years and however that will be possible. Uh, and I thank you so much on behalf of the Voce Dialogues and all those of us that are so grateful for your compassionate work in the world thank you so much thank you chloe it's a joy to connect with you and and thank you julie if you're listening yes yeah julie (laughs) okay god bless thank you